equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, help us to see you in the scripture, song, and the message today. We pray the Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word and make the necessary changes in our hearts and patterns of thought so when the world sees how we live, it will cause them to glorify you and draw them toward you. Amen. everybody. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jesse. I work with the youth here at Creekside Church. Um, before we get going, hey guys, <laughs> before we get going um, on the youth ministry update, a couple announcements for this week. This Saturday is the Shins Gathering. It's called the Soup and Salad Valentine's Bonanza. I believe I got that right. It's going to be at noon here at the church on Saturday. I think there's a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center. Um, additionally, next week is our quarterly missions offering, so keep that in mind next Sunday. Okay, so I want to give you guys a quick update on our youth ministry here at Creekside. So up on the screen are going to be some pictures um, that you can look at as, as I talk. I won't feel bad if you're not making eye contact, so go ahead and take a look at those. This year, uh, we've had a lot of good stuff going on, a lot of awesome opportunities, and a lot of great students and leaders to be involved in those. It's been a lot of fun. On Wednesday nights, kind of the, the core of our youth ministry here at Creekside, we get together, and this last year, our group has grown from averaging at around 30 students to around 50 students. So we've increased quite a bit. We're maxing out our space, and uh, it's meant some changes in how we do things. But one thing that hasn't changed is we're still trying to make disciples of Jesus, and it's been a lot of fun. As any of you who have worked with youth know, no doubt, it can be a little crazy as well. And on Wednesday nights, it definitely gets a little crazy. Uh, we have um, some, some pretty high-energy kids who, when they get together, can get a little rowdy. But what's been really encouraging is seeing some answer to prayer and that in a handful of those students, uh, we've seen a shift in their hearts of coming just to goof around and cause problems and um, pick on people to wanting to understand what's going on, wanting to dig into the word, wanting to invest themselves. And so it's been really encouraging to see God answering prayer and see hearts changing um, by the power of the Spirit. We also meet on Sunday nights here at the church in small groups. It's our small group Bible study time where mostly it's our Creekside families, the students of the Creekside families who come together and we, we study the word together, we pray together, and we uh, establish community together. We, we spend time talking about our week, what we've been doing, what's been good, what's been bad. And I think that's a really valuable time for us to be 
building relationships and growing in the word and in our faith. And it's been super fun, and we've been off for a little while, so I'm excited to get back at it with you guys. Lastly, as you saw in the pictures up there, we've had the opportunity to do a handful of trips this year. Thanks to all of you. One of them was our summer camp out uh, where we all middle school and high school went together to Jester Park for uh, about 23 hours and just spent a bunch of time having fun. Alan led us in worship around the fire and we spent some time in the word and we did some kayaking and paddle boarding, some rock climbing, fun stuff like that. Another opportunity we had this year was going with some other local churches to an all-nighter called Blitz uh, for the middle schoolers. Um, there's some pretty good pictures up there of those. But the one I really want to talk about is Impact, our high school retreat we recently did. And I want to bring that up because many of you know that uh, we did a bake sale a uh, month and a half ago or so in order to raise support for it. It's definitely our most expensive trip we've done so far. And in order to make sure everyone who wanted to go could go, we did a fundraiser. And all of you gave very generously, which we're very thankful for. We were able to support um, five students going, in addition to those who were already signed up. And we were able to get a van so we could all ride together over to Coral, Iowa, uh, which was a huge blessing. So thank you all for supporting generously. And also thank you all for your prayers, not only for that trip, which was a great time. I'm sure if you ask any of the students or if you want to ask me, my wife, or Courtney, who came with us, it was a great time. But in addition to that, I know many of you have been praying for us on a regular basis in our youth ministry, and those prayers are felt, and we can't do anything, either the leaders or the students, without God's power. So we need you to keep praying. Thank you very much, and we're very blessed. Thank you. just want to put a plug in um, to thank uh, Jesse and... Uh, Mackenzie, who is our administrative system, his wife, and just can't encourage you enough to show and share your appreciation with them uh, because they're, uh, they're doing a great job. Uh, and so I'm just very, yeah, yeah. So thank you. Thank you. And for all of our other youth sponsors and people, uh, he didn't say this, but uh, they, uh, we could use some more help uh, with, uh, with the students, okay? So some of you, maybe even some of you with uh, younger uh, bones and bodies uh, that would be uh, willing to come alongside and, uh, and help. Uh, you know, I, I've done an all-nighter or two with youth group before. Um, um, yeah, recoveries, uh, recovery gets longer and longer as you get older and older, so we know that. But anyhow, uh, if you're here as a guest and this is your very first time, uh, there is an additional fold on the bulletin, and uh, we would sure appreciate that if you would take the time to fill that out. If you, if you don't have a pencil, there's one at the welcome table, and then put that in the offering box, which is on the welcome table. And as part of a regular church family, family that uh, fold is for you as well. You can indicate your uh, interest in uh, prayer requests or whatever you want to put on there. And if you are involved in our Sunday school, uh, you are dismissed at this time, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you uh, that we serve an awesome Savior. And I thank you for the way that you are working, and we are so appreciative. And sometimes, I, I don't know why, we act like we're surprised that you're doing the work that you've promised that you would do and that your Spirit is 
uh, pledged to do. And I pray that you would continue to do that work, not only in our young people, but in us as well, that we would continue to, to lead, be a, a part of leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And I ask now as we spend time in your word that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you touch each of us, some of us, that we might be brought to a place of full surrender to Christ as our Savior and others, that having made that commitment, we might uh, pledge more fully to follow you by the power of your spirit working within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In concluding his I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, said this, When we allow freedom to ring, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I am free at last. Martin Luther King Jr. held as a, a fantasy, and I don't say that in a derogatory means, but a dream, as, as a fantasy of experiencing freedom for all people physically in the United States, that has become a spiritual reality for every child of God. Every person who has personally turned from their sin and put their faith in the trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is free at last from sin's tyranny in our lives. Every black person, white person, brown person, Jew, Gentile, everyone who is justified by faith in Christ is free at last. In Romans chapter 6, we've been looking at that free at last and we say that the entire chapter is kind of like this. It's like we're dead to sin but we're alive to God. Okay? We have victory over sin and death. And last week we looked at that, dead to sin and alive to God, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. That, no, we're not supposed to keep on sinning because God has graciously provided us this salvation. And now, in chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul punctuates the fact that those who are justified by faith means that we're free from sin, we are not free to sin. In fact, we have been called not to sin. We've been called to live righteously in Christ Jesus. Not just as a matter of our own human will, but as a matter of the Spirit of God working within us. And so, we're now slaves of righteousness. And commanded to act like it and live like it. And so, in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul offers a couple of reasons why salvation by grace provides no encouragement for believers to persist in sin, but actually an expectation that we would obey God. So it's not just a matter of that we have been delivered from this sin principle within our life, and so the bad stuff is stuff we don't do anymore. No, we're supposed to press on to do what's right. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23 that I'm going to read. If you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one under the seat in front of you somewhere close. Or you, if you have an app on your phone, you can follow along or another device. But I'm reading verses 15 through 23. What then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, to, uh, to, to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derived your benefit resulting in satisfaction and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a mandate to live free from sin. So there is a mandate. And there are three considerations in verses 15 through 19 finally culminating in that mandate. First of all, there's this indignation that, that prompts the mandate. Verse 15 begins with, what then? Uh, go back, if you will, to chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Go to chapter 7, verse 5. What shall we say then? This is a repeated question. The what then anticipates an accusation his critics would make because of his declaration made in verse 14. What was his declaration in verse 14? Well, you're, for sin shall not be our master over us, for you're not under the law, but you're under grace. What then? And then he proceeds. He says, okay, well, what then? If we're not under law, but we're under grace, so shall we continue in sin? Shall we, shall we sin then? Because we're not under law, but under grace? If you're not under law's condemnation, but you're under grace's reconciliation, then does it naturally follow that if grace overcomes everything, then you can just keep sinning? Because there's no ultimate consequence for your sin. That's the accusation that they were making. That's the objection that Paul was now seeking to answer because they were throwing that at him. The antagonist concerned that if grace overcomes sin, then Paul's message of salvation promotes lawlessness. Do whatever you want because you'll never suffer the consequence if God's grace overcomes it. And what's his response? May it never be. The same response that he gave in chapter 6 when they wanted to know, well, if, uh, where sin abounds, grace superabounds, shall we continue to sin even more? Because then if we sin ever more, then we'll see God's grace even more. That's a perverted thought. And that's exactly what he says. May it, well, he doesn't say it that. He says, may it never be. Okay? It repeats the same emphatic denunciation of the idea that God's grace encourages believers to sin. Salvation by grace through faith is no incentive to sin. In fact, it's an inspiration to live godly. It's the exact opposite of what they were claiming it to be. Then that's the indignation. Now the illustration that propels 
and, and brings about this, this command, okay, this mandate. And there's two aspects I want us to consider here. First of all, we're going to contemplate the analogy in principle. And so in verse 16, he kind of throws out an illustration, an analogy that they're supposed to grasp a hold of. And so verse 16 says, Do you not know, he starts with that, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Well, the do you not know that introduces the question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. They're not supposed to really answer it, but he's presenting them with a, with a truth that when they grasp the full meaning of it, they're going to agree with it. And so he said, well, don't you know this? And then he goes on to tell them what they know. When they contemplate his illustration, they're going to grasp it, that you are slaves of the one whom you voluntarily obey. And everybody goes, yeah, that makes sense. We obey our masters. And so whoever, whomever we obey, that's the one that rules over us. That's, that's our master. I mean, sadly, you know, we're all hearing about all this political stuff, but isn't it sad that some of the people, most of the people, many of the people that we elect as elected officials, they don't obey those of us who elected them. They obey their big donor masters. You know, they have big donor masters that are the ones that they obey. And so the ones they obey, those are the ones that are their masters. So just look around. If they're doing the stuff you wanted them to do when you voted for them, then they're serving you. But if they're doing the stuff that isn't what you elected them to do, they're serving somebody else. Paul is saying, whomever you serve, that's your master. Whomever you obey, that is your master. Our actions reveal whom our master is. And then he applies the principle to life, and he says, really, there's only two masters. And he begins, I'm in verse 16, so I'm trying to just keep looking at the text. Either sin, you obey, you're the, the, one, you're the slave of the one whom you obey. Either sin, that's the first master. And so a person whose life is characterized by persistent ongoing disobedience to God is a slave of sin. So now do you see how Paul's getting at this? Oh, should we, if this grace thing is, is good uh, and grace covers everything, then we should just continue in sin. And Paul says, well, this is what I think he's trying to say is, well, that's stupid because if you sin, then you're the slave of sin. John 8.34 uh, says this, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So, um, and we can, you can write down 2 Peter 2, 19, we don't have to go there, but, well, we will. It's promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what anyone is overcome, by this he is enslaved. If we're doing something, then uh, obeying something, then that's the master over us, is what he's saying. So slavery to sin, what does it result in? Physical and spiritual death. That's what he says in verse 16. Okay, Physical and spiritual death. That's what it results in. Which is where he concludes this chapter. Verse 23, the wage of sin is death. So he's getting there. But what's fascinating to me, as you look at the text, you think, okay, if the first master that we could serve is sin... 
the one we obey is sin, then that's our master, then what do you think would be the alternative, alternative to that? If we serve sin, that's our master, or we could serve God or Jesus. But that's not what the text says. The text says obedience. Look at verse 16. He says, either, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And so you would think the alternate of sin would be God. You'd think the alternate of death would be life. What he says is the alternate is obedience and righteousness. So what is he saying? Here's my stab at it. If, if we're consistently obe obedient to God, that marks us out as a slave of obedience. But we're the slave of obedience to God in this sense, that we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we've turned from our sin and trusted in Christ and obeyed the gospel, which brings us life, results in life. Results in life. And we obey not just the gospel, but we obey all of God's will, which brings us into a righteous, not only a position, which is what faith and, and obedience that to the gospel brings us, obedience of a position of righteousness, but if we continue in doing what God says, then we're in a practice of righteousness, and that is the life. So he's not really saying something different here than he says throughout the text, but he's using different words. I put it this way. Paul speaks of slavery to God resulting in life just as he did in verses 22 and 23. Although he's using different terms. He's using obedience and righteousness instead of God, slavery to God, and slavery to uh, and resulting in life. He's just using different terms to emphasize the necessity of obedience. Maybe that's too confusing, but if you look at verse 16, he says, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in life. Now go down to verse, six, uh, verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you deserve, derive the benefit resulting in sanctification outcome of eternal life. Verse 20, 23. The wage of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. I don't think Paul is saying something different in verse 16 than he says in 22 and 23. He's just using different terms, obedience and, and righteousness, to refer to those things. We're obedient. We're slaves of God. And that's marked out by your obedience. And we're results in life which he uses the term righteousness. Righteousness, which we've talked about all through Romans, is a result of our faith. And righteousness brings life. You can read it in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Romans 5, 18. So then, uh, as, as through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness, there resulted in what? Life. Justification of life. So this is what he's saying. Every human being either serves sin in disobedience or God through obedience. Take your choice. So which are you? Servant of sin or servant of God? Life characterized by sin, serve sin. Life characterized by obedience to God, I'm a servant of God. That's the choice. Then, not only are we looking at the, the contemplation of that analogy. And then he, we celebrate that analogy because he personalizes it. In verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, 
he starts, but the, the principle, there's two realms, okay? I, I, if I'm a slave of sin or if I'm a slave of God. So now how does, it, how does that manifest itself? And all through this section, he's contrasting where you were before you became a believer to the people he's writing, and now what is true of you after you are a child of God? He does it there in verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. That's interesting. You're slaves of sin. Thanks be to God. Because though you were slaves of sin, you were, notice the past tense, you were. You were controlled by your sin nature inherited from Adam and destined for death like every single human being on planet earth except for Jesus. You have a fallen human nature and you're controlled by that nature and sin and you're headed for death, separation from God, apart from God. But you received, he's talking to these people who are believers, you received God's gracious gift of righteousness and faith. And so you are no longer slaves of sin. That's what we saw in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. You're no longer slaves of sin. No. But you're freed from sin. Uh, look at verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you're freed from sin. From sin's what? What do you mean from sin? Now keep in mind, you're freed from sin's dominance, domination, and sin's, sin's damnation. The child of God is free from sin's control and freed from sin's consequence. Ultimate consequence. That's what he's saying. Paul described their salvation, he goes on in verse 17, to describe this salvation, this transition, what you were, what you are, you became. See, what you were was a slave of sin. But you became, I'm going to use the terminology, righteous, a slave of God. How did you become a slave of God? Well, he describes it this way. You became obedient to that, uh, from the heart, to that form of teaching in which you were committed. So he's talking about heart change, not just outward action. He's talking about conduct driven by sincerity, not just outward conformity. This is a genuine conversion. This is a genuine reality. It's not somebody who's showing up to church on Sunday morning and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower because I came into the church. I'm a Jesus follower because I put some money in the offering plate. I'm a Jesus follower because I, I, I used Jesus' name in a non-profane way one time this week. Our son played uh, football in high school, and uh, one particular week it had rained six inches the week before the game. Now that's a lot of rain on a grass field. They played on Friday night at halftime of the of the football game, one of the offensive linemen, starting offensive linemen's uniform was impeccably clean. He was going through the motions. With six inches of rain, just for those of you who don't have never played football before, uh, if you're in the game, even as a bystander, you're probably going to get knocked down, fall down, and you're going to get grass-stained mud, and you're, your, your uniform is going to be filthy. A mother's nightmare. But this boy came in at halftime. I mean, he, he had, literally, he had white, long sleeve shirts on, on the outside of his uniform, and no grass stains, no mud, no nothing. Our son was livid. He was one of the offensive linemen. He's supposed to be blocking. Going through the motions. 
I ask you this morning, are you going through the motions of being a Christian? Because Paul says here that these people had, had been obedient from their heart. Their, their heart was in it. Genuine saving faith and obedience are inseparable. To believe in Christ is to behave as Christ. At least in some semblance. Now obviously we're not, <laughs> all of us are way short of Jesus. But there, there's, there's movement in it, in that, in that process. In John chapter 3, verse, verse 36, um, uh, John says this, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God repents in him. Notice, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son, notice how the belief and the obey are compatible. They're parallel. No obey, no believe. Believe and obey, they go together. In, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. It's serious business. And Paul's readers had manifest this saving faith. It says, I, I, that's how I read verse 17, they had become obedient from the heart, what? To the form of teaching to which you were committed. What, what was the form of teaching that they had been committed to? What was the form of teaching that they had been presented with? I see it as a, you know, like 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, hold on to the example of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I believe that he's talking here in Romans about the word of faith and, and, and love which are in Christ Jesus, what they had heard from him, the sound words that they had heard from him, and perhaps others. And they held to that form of teaching. Now, I don't know what form it came in, you know. They say, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That may be the form that it came, but I, what, it doesn't matter how it came to them. It is that whatever the form it was, they received it and they obeyed it. They accepted it. And any other doctrine, as and they were obedient to it. We had uh, some uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses came to our door several weeks ago. You know, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to talk, and they wanted to talk, and uh, so I, I just said, okay, let's go to John chapter one. I said, what are you going to tell me about Jesus here? Uh, is Jesus God or is Jesus not God? Uh, because uh, my understanding of uh, your teaching is that that Jesus is not God; he was a God. You know. Uh, or he was some sort of a nice guy. And I'm saying, well, the, the scripture says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who's the Word here? You know, we had this little discussion. So long story short is, they do not believe that Jesus is God. And if they don't believe that Jesus is God, then they are still slaves of sin. They haven't received the sound doctrine, the teaching of Faith and love in Christ Jesus, fully given by the Scriptures. In whatever form it comes, however it comes to them, they don't embrace it. And if they don't embrace it, then they're not in it. And they're slaves of sin. I don't say that with delight. Um, it's, it's sad. 
they're slaves of sin. And then he, he says, and having been, verse 18, you committed, you, you were obedient and having been. Notice the past tense. Having been free. He's talking about that through faith, their faith proving obedience. When you obey, you prove your faith. Okay. And by doing that, Paul concluded with confidence that these believers had been freed from sin's dominance and its deathly consequence. They had become slaves of righteousness by virtue of their new birth. And I'm telling you, folks, when a person puts their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, they, it's past tense about them being freed. The moment you put your faith and your trust in Christ, you have become freed from sin. You have been made righteous, a slave of righteousness. That's your identity. Now, that's not necessarily always our activity. <laughs> we don't always act like we're freed from sin. We don't always act like we're slaves of righteousness. But that's who we are as children of God. That's what Paul's saying about these people. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you will be free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. I am free at last. Whether I live like that or not uh, is another story, which Paul is teasing out as we, as we walk through the text. That's why uh, it, it's not always readily apparent. And Christians confirm our identity by spirit-empowered living. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, it says, as obedient children, oh, obedience that evidences faith, that's my addition. Do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. Now notice the contrast here. As believers, yes, we're supposed to be freed from these bad things, which were yours in ignorance. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. It's like, I'm not supposed to be down here groveling in the bad stuff, but I'm also supposed to be pursuing the good stuff. And I wonder, in your daily life, if you know Jesus, how conscious are you of pursuing the good stuff? Well, yeah, I'm not a bad person. I don't do this bad stuff. I'm not, I'm not really, I know I'm supposed to not do this stuff. But what am I supposed to do? That leads to the instruction, the mandate, in verse 19. And Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And I read that and I go... Well, okay, you're a human being, you're speaking to human beings, but what does he actually mean by speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh? Well, I think it's his admission that his slavery analogy and its application to believers' activity is imperfect, but it's a necessary accommodation to their human limitations. Because he's going to say that just as you uh, presented your members to, as slaves to sin... And I'm thinking, well, no, I don't present my members as slaves to sin before I come to Christ. I'm just sinning. I mean, it's not like any presentation on my part. It's just that's the truth. So he's making an accommodation to our human weakness and, and trying to, to, to flesh it out, which he says, to your flesh. Well, what is the flesh? It's our outer person, our outer body. Our earthly body, and synonymous with, as he talks about here in verse 19, the members of our earthly body. It's our 
non-spiritual aspect of our being, okay? Because our inner being has been transformed. That's what he, he says, that our, our inner being, it's, the, it's our weak flesh, it's our, it's our outward being. He says, remember, you, that, that weak flesh part is, is the outer person. It's still vulnerable to corruption of sin. My mind and my thoughts and my attitudes, my words, my actions, I'm still subject to the, to the influences of sin, even though our inner person is free from sin's mastery. That's part of the weakness. He says, I'm commanding you to be a slave of righteousness when in fact it's a struggle because your body doesn't want to go there. So your spirit is free, but your body is like, yeah, well, you know, I kind of like you know, some of this old sin stuff. And so that's the accommodation of the human weakness. And so even though our person is free from sin's mastery, our weak flesh makes surrendering to the bodies, the surrendering of our bodies to righteousness hard and, and difficult. It's challenging. So prior to salvation, he says here in, in, in verse 19, prior to salvation, I'm speaking of weakness, for just as you presented your members as slaves, prior to salvation, all of us are slaves of impurity and lawlessness. Which leads to further lawlessness. And think about it. Some of you have been there. I mean, you know, you get down dirty with sin, and how's that work? You just keep going down. You just keep getting worse. It's kind of like a, 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 an infectious disease that ravages and ruins your body. It just keeps multiplying and the, the, the disease cells just keep growing and growing and growing. It just keeps working until finally, it, it, and so is sin, it, it takes control of our lives until it dominates and decimates and destroys us. It's just the way it works. You keep sinning, you keep sinning, you keep sinning. And he says that's how it is. But says, in verse 19 he says, so now, that's who you were. But so now, Here's what you're supposed to do. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. That's the human limitation. That's the difficult part. I'm I'm saved and regenerate and I have a new nature on the inside, but I tell you what, on the outside, my body, my mind, my thoughts, my words, my eyes, my hands, my feet, they want to go everywhere else. And so it's here you got to do. You got to sacrifice it on the altar. So present your bodies, the members of your body, so now, present the members, now, so now, you were, so now. And I think he's going back to chapter 6, uh, verse 13. We saw this last week. Look at the end. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Present your members of your body. It's a full and final surrender. That's what it means to come to Jesus. Is There's a full and final surrender of our absolute being to him. Full obedience and sacrificial service. And then, you know, as we keep going on in faith, there'll be times, and there are often more times than not, when we all have to, we have to re-up. You know, we have to kind of like, okay, a reboot. But yeah, I am surrendered to Jesus. I am surrendered to Christ and what He wants to do in my life. I am doing it. Now, you're going to have to indulge me because I referred to this guy last week, but uh, uh, to Brock Purdy, uh, after... Who's a football player, okay? For those who don't like football, I'm sorry, I use a lot of football analogies. Nah, uh, eh, okay. Uh, forgive me. Um, but he's, a, he's an NFL quarterback, uh, used to play at Iowa State, and last week he was down, they were down 17 points at halftime. 
in the NFC Championship game. And I'm not a big NFL fan. Like, right, I, I watched, that was, a, that was the first NFL game I watched the whole game last week. And it might be the last one, I don't know. But I, I, I'm not a big NFL fan, but, but I like Brock Purdy because he's a believer and he stands for the Lord and he, he's a good ball player. Anyhow, at the halftime, after the game, they won the game. After the game, here's what Brock Purdy said. When I'm down 17 points at half, he's saying to himself, all right, God, you've taken me here. Win or lose, I'm going to glorify you. That's my piece. Win or lose, I'm going to glorify you. And so what's the first thing out of his mouth when they won the game? He's glorifying God. He's saying, that's what I was thinking, and that's what I'm doing. Here's a life, he's, he's, he's surrendered to members of his body as instruments, as a slave of righteousness. And his example, I think, challenges us to surrender ourselves to pursue and practice humble obedience for the glory of God. As Paul said of himself in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, you read on, according to my eager expectation and hope that with all boldness, Christ may now, even as always, like that, now, even as always, be exalted, what? In my body. The flesh, that nasty part that's still subject to, to sin. He's going to be exalted in my body. That's what he said. See, God didn't free us from sin's mastery to live in its misery. But that we might grow in Christ-likeness, love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Paul said to the Colossians, he says, And now as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, let us put on a heart of compassion, and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all that, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were also you were called into one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, to God the Father. We're supposed to live like Jesus. We're supposed to be surrendered to Him. That's the mandate. Then there's the motivation to live free from sin. And in the contrast of two realms the, uh, of existence incentivizes disobedience. So you see, I hope, as you walk through the text, this contrast. And we begin by looking at the previous, we were previously slaves of sin, free from righteousness, whose fruit is death. Look at verse 20. For when, past tense, you were, past tense, slaves of sin, controlled by its power, destined for destruction, ready to, to spend an eternity apart from God, which is the case, I don't care how happy, how well-adjusted, how uh, wealthy, how, uh, enjoying, how much you enjoy life, if you're an unsaved person, guess what? You're a slave of sin. 
Sin is your master. You're a slave. And you're subject to its dictates as a way of life. And notice what the text says. You're free from righteousness. You're free in regard to righteousness. What that means is that righteousness holds no sway or influence in your life. It's the opposite of a child of God. It, it's, it has no control. Um, I'm not a big horse person, but I've been around horses enough to know uh, that a horse that is free from the restraints of a bit and a bridle and a rein is a wild horse. Okay? Every human being who is not restrained by the power of the Spirit of God because they've yielded their life by faith and trusted in Jesus Christ is a slave of sin and not restrained by righteousness. That's what Paul's saying. You're, there's no restraint of righteousness. It's, and so, it's, guess what? It's a vanity to preach morality to those who have no internal capacity to conform. What people need is reconciliation with God before there can be transformation of their life. We have to preach the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Apart from transformation, a, a, a reconciliation, there is no transformation. So if there's no transformation in a person's life, there's no reconciliation in the person's life. And that's where we need to change. Paul said, there is therefore, he said um, that, that, that we, are, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, he says. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We have become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, he says, all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not regarding, not counting our trespasses against us, and he's given us the word of reconciliation, as if we were ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming, we, 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 we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We want people to come to know Christ. Then their life will be transformed. That we, we Previously, we were slaves of sin. Free from righteousness, but now, that's not the end. Verse 22, he says, oh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 21, he says, therefore, what benefit was there? I like this. Okay, you, you business people, what's the ROI on a life of sin? Return on investment for those of us who are non-people you know, uh, non like that, you know, non-business people. The return on investment for a life of sin, look at verse 21, therefore what benefit were you then deriving from the things that you're now ashamed of? Again, he's talking to believers. He says, what's the ROI on your, your life uh, apart from Christ? Consisting of activities that you're now ashamed of. What, what, what's the return on investment there? Rhetorical question. Answer, zip. Nothing, nada. But... There, there, there is a result to it. I'm, I'm in verse 21. Death. You're going to die. You get no benefit, but, but the end is great, right? You're just dead. 
So is that not an incentive to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and, and not to keep on sinning? Like they were accusing Paul of proclaiming that, oh, just keep on sinning after you turn to Christ. No, that's, that's not what it's about. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Those things lead to certain spiritual and physical death resulting in hell. Okay? Now, okay, now presently, that's the past, previously. Now, we are presently slaves of God, bound to righteousness, and the fruit of that is life. And there's two manifestations of this life in, in the text in verses 22 and 23. Now, notice he says in verse 22, but now, contrast, verse 20, for when, verse 22, but now, for when, but now. Back then, you were a slave of sin, dead in the water, done. But now, not true. He says, but now. Introduces a stark contrast between the previously unrighteous person and their present position as a believer. People justified by faith in Christ are actually, and notice how he repeats it again here, freed from sin. You are freed from sin, verse 22, uh, similar to verse 18. And enslaved to God. You're God's slaves. Enslaved to God. And recipients of two profound benefits. Here's the ROI on being a slave of God and living for righteousness. Sanctification. 64 cent word for holiness. Maturity. The process whereby we are becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the result. You know, you saw it, right? If in the same way that the the sin results in further lawlessness... Righteousness results in sanctification. If we're righteous, we keep becoming more righteous as we pursue that in our life by the power of the Spirit of God working within us. And secondly, eternal life. Now, this is in verse 22, okay? Which begins the moment you trust Christ. You say, well, uh, yeah, you have eternal life. Well, what's that about? I have it now. You are a child of God. You have eternal life now. That's who you are. It continues on into glory. And in glory, then we fully and finally realize that we're free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin to lure us into temptation, and the presence of sin for eternity. That's the benefit that that comes to us. And so, you know, that's why Paul was praying. He says, and, 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 and to the, Col- and the Colossians, he says, and, uh, and, and when we heard of it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? So that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. The result, what he's praying for is, you'd live like who you are. You'd walk worthy and, uh, of your calling. Then, in verse 23, he sums it all up. And he presents these powerful motivational summary that contrasts the consequences and the conduct of both forms of slavery. Slavery to God, or slavery to sin, and slavery to God. And so how do you say The truisms call unbelievers to repentance and believers to righteousness. And here they are. The wage of sin is death. Uh, can you show that... Uh, uh, yeah, the wage of sin is death on the left side. 
The wage of sin is death. Here's the deal. This is a sobering thought. The inevitable, unavoidable, earned, and just compensation for every human apart from Christ. What do you get? What do you deserve? What's your compensation? Death. It's eternal. It's spiritual. It's physical. It's painful. Then, the opposite. What's the opposite side of that? That's motivation to stop sinning. I sin, I'm going to die. Well, not a good thing. But there's a positive motivation. That's the other side of the coin. The free gift of God is eternal life. That's what God has provided for us. Free gift. Nothing you can do to earn it. You don't deserve it. But it's given to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's one bridge between those. See, on the left is an eternity apart from God. On the right is eternity with God. And there's only one, one bridge, and that's the person and the work of Jesus. And for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one can boast. It's a gift. A gift must be received. The gift that is received, the gift of eternal life, becoming a slave of righteousness, is through faith. You turn from your sin, you accept Christ's death on the cross as the payment for your sin, and you trust it, and you believe that he died for you, and you surrender your life to him. Full and faithful surrender that continues on and on and on through this life. That's the process. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so as you sit here this morning, as you listen online, you're in one of two camps. You're a slave of sin, destined for death, or you're a slave of God with eternal life and a slave of righteousness called to yield your members, your body, your human outward external mind, your thoughts, your ideas, your hands, your feet, your pocketbook to Jesus as a slave of God and that you're, you're alive forever in eternity. I don't know where you're at. But if you have never received the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that's my invitation to you. That's my, what I implore you to do. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the call for us as believers is to live like who we are and to present our members as instruments of righteousness and slaves of righteousness. And so I'm going to stand up. We're going to have communion in a minute because communion is what, what the greatest demonstration of partaking this bread and juice which symbolize the price that Christ paid so that we could be free everyone who believes it inspires us to live obediently as Christians I'm going to be up here and stay up here if you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you feel the spirit of God tugging on your heart or you have something you need me to pray about you want to know more information about it I'm going to be right up here I'd love to talk to you I'd love to pray with you I'd love to just find out what's going on in your heart and we'll be discreet about it not going to take a long time but there's, this is the day of decision. Paul said to, to, to Timothy and to the people in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says that we should pursue righteousness, godliness, love, faith, perseverance, and gentleness. I, I've been challenged by this, folks, to pursue it. Not just to accept it, I'm a child of God. Not to just put off the sin that I know is bad, but to pursue what I know is right. No, not just in my own flesh. It's got to be the Spirit of God working in me. And so I'm going to pray.
And then if you're here this morning, you heard my plea, my invitation, I want you to come join me. I'll pray with you. The rest of you, just as the praise team plays the song, you come up here and you celebrate the, the joy of what God has done for you in Christ. And as a challenge to respond to his love by living for him. Let's pray. Father, um, these are tough truths, but they're great truths. I pray that everyone here this morning who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior would be challenged by where we were and now where we are. We are are children of God, for by grace we have been saved through faith. And it's a gift that we have received. And the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and we have that eternal life, and now we're to live as those who are your children. So help us to celebrate where you've brought us from and to commit to, to, to live for you. And those who don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts right now, that they would surrender to Christ and, and, and turn from their slavery to sin and find new life in you. In Jesus' name we pray.